So we're going to start in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, See how very much our Father loves us, for He calls us His children, and this is what we are. And I love how it says, See how great. By the way, you sang this song when you were little if you grew up in church. Do you remember this song? Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. That we should be called the sons of God. And then you did it around. Oh, I so want to do it. I'm not going to do it. Um, but I kind of want to. Listen, listen, it's great. And the word, the word for behold is actually not just, oh, look and see. It's actually, uh, the word is putapen in Greek. And it means astonishment, admiration, wonder, awe, amazement, right? It is like literally be baffled by what amazing love the Father has for us. What glorious, measureless love God has for us. And you know what? John Stott in his commentary on this book um, actually says, if it's a literal translation, the literal translation means, in what country could you find this love? Right? He, Stott says it this way. The Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to this world that John wonders what country it might come from. So as he wrote it, he wrote, not just behold what manner of love the Father. He says, in what world are you loved like this? Where in the world can you find this kind of love? That's probably how we'd say it today. Where did this great love come from? It astonishes us, it amazes us, and creates wonder in those who reflect upon it. And it says, behold what manner of love the Father has given, but given is not really a great translation of the word right? A better translation is, has lavished onto us. Have you ever gotten a bagel in New York City? And you say, put some schmear on it? Like, I didn't know what that meant. I thought it meant they were going to put some, 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 what is it? Cream cheese on it, right? That's not, that's not what they do. They get a spoon. I mean, it's supposed to be a knife, but it's really a spoon. And they dig out like an ice cream scoop worth of cream cheese and they put it on it and it's the size of the bread. That's what lavish means. Have you ever had someone lavish that kind of love on you? Like overwhelming love? Like too much, too much. Like what if you had a Valentine's Day that looked like this? You wake up in the morning and there's always flowers next to the bed, right? Oh, and then you get up and you go into the kitchen and breakfast is already made. Coffee's there just the way you like it. It's beautiful. You go take a shower, get ready for the day. You get in your car. There's a note in your car about how much love, how much this person loves you. Isn't it beautiful? Right? You get to your desk at work and they somehow broke into your desk at work and you open up and every drawer is just full of roses and candies. Right? Am I setting the bar too high? I feel like I might be. Right? I've never done this, just to be clear. Right? You go to lunch and pizza is brought in, but it's pizza in the shape of a heart. <laughs> Just for the record, I'm talking a lot today and I have this big presentation to do. So all the other services are really quick and there's a lot of fun things I wanted to do in this sermon. So you're getting them all, okay? You're just getting all the weird jokes I, didn't, I wasn't able to do. Anyway, just like, let's say a day, that's love being lavished upon you. This is what John is talking about, about. So it's a shame that we just look at it like, oh yeah, look at the love that God has for us. He's like, in what world, in what planet do you get this kind of love that has been lavished, smeared upon you? Bad use of that word, but you understand what I mean. And there's another implication about it. 
The implication is not that it's just been given to you, but the implication is that it is yours forever. This love is not conditional. It's lossless. It will never break down. It does not wear down. It does not have what we've come to know as planned obsolescence. Have you heard that term before? You know what that term is, right? It means that the thing that you have in your hand right now, because most of you have your phone in your hand, right? It means that that thing is going to eventually not work, and they plan it that way, right? It's interesting. In 1924, uh, General Motors had sold about every car they could sell. There was a saturation of the market in North America. Nobody was buying cars anymore. You know why? Because every car looked the same and did the exact same thing. It had the same features, which was just, it ran. It was 1924. It wasn't like they were plugging in a cell phone or anything. Um, so, and every car was the same, essentially. You bought your car. It worked. You kept it for 10 years. You know, and if it stopped working, you could fix it. Isn't that weird? Um, just fix it, and it works again. Um, so... In 1924, a man by the name of Alfred P. Sloan Jr. suggested for planned yearly changes in the design of the car. Let's tweak something here. Let's tweak something there. Let's change this here. Let's change that there. Why? Because they knew that eventually you would want something new, even though it does exactly the same thing and the thing you have does it fine already. That changed the, the American economy. And we all live in that American economy that has planned obsolescence. In fact, we are used to things expiring. How many of you grew up with the same dishwasher pretty much the whole time you grew up? Right? Just one dishwasher. And it ages us a little bit, I know. But I've been married now for 20, it'll be 20. Oh, don't get like that. The higher it gets, the harder the math is. 28. That's right. It's 20, because we're the same, yeah. It's 28. So it'll be 28 this year. We've gone through like five dishwashers. And the conversation is like this, right? Your dishwasher kind of falls apart. And so you call them up and you're like, hey, I need you to fix my dishwasher. And they're like, what's wrong with it? And you're like, why am I calling you if I knew what was wrong with it? Like, I don't know, it does this. And they're like, oh, read the error code. Push nine buttons and error code pops up. And you're like, it's this. And they're like, oh yeah, you need a new brain to the computer. I'm like, it's a dishwasher. How much brain do I need? But okay. And they're like, that's $350 and $150 for us to show up. We can be there in a week from Thursday. And you're like, okay, we're at 500 bucks. I'll just buy a new one. And they're like, yeah, okay, that's probably better. Which is a weird business model for a service person to just, but that's the way things are, right? In fact, things have gotten so bad in today's world that they actually are, are, are passing laws called the right to repair laws. You know this, right? So we can regain our right to repair the things that we have. That seems strange, but I'm not gonna lie. As I was doing the sermon I love writing sermons because you never know where it's going to lead you. It led me to right of repair, and I started to, like, get kind of interested in what's all going on with a right to repair, right? And there's four things that you have to have in a right to repair situation. And I'm likening this to the love of God and us and how we interact with it. So maybe it's a stretch, but it was super interesting to me. So stick with me if you can, right? The first point of a right to repair law says that the maker has to make information available on how to repair this thing. Now, in the first century, in John's churches, they had all these Gnostics who were saying, hey, there's all this secret information that you can't know until we let you in. It was a heresy that was going on. And they were saying that the information was not readily available. But God was saying, hey, I've self-revealed everything. Everything you need to know about me, you can know about me through Scripture and through the life of Christ. 
right? So this is literally a push, pushback on the Gnostic heresy that was going on. We are encouraged, as we see in John's writing, to behold, to see, to think, to reflect about God's love for us, which is self-evident. We know that it's there because God has made it evident for us. That's the first point in a right to repair law. The second re- right to repair point is this. You have to make parts and tools available so you can actually fix it. In the same way, God has given us everything that we need, all the tools to know him and to be present in the relationship. What tools? Things like your mind, a community, hope, and a heart. There's everything out there that you need to know to fix what's broken in you so you can love God and God can love you and you can understand and experience that love. He's given us everything. Now, number three, it has to allow to be unlocked, right? So if it's a piece of software, there has to be a way that you can get in and mess with the software. We call it jailbreaking uh, for those of us who have iPhones, and we don't talk about it much anymore because we've been locked into this one service and we can't do anything else, right? Well, we're not locked into one way of serving God, and that's beautiful because we can do things like acts of service. We can do things like prayer and all the other spiritual disciplines are ways that we unlock and release the love of God into the world. And the last one's interesting. This is for the designers. You have to, in the design, you have to accommodate for repair in the design. So that means the person who makes it has to make a way that you can, for instance, in Europe, I believe, they just passed a law, I'm not exactly sure where, but they just passed a law that you have to be able to get to the battery of an iPhone right? So that you can fix it. You can switch out, uh, not just an iPhone, but any phone. So that means that Apple has to go back and redesign those phones so you can break them open, not break them open, so you can actually open them and use them and replace the phone. We, we have been designed with repair in mind, right? It's been built into us. We have repair built into the design of who we are. It's called forgiveness and repentance, right? Confession and even absolution that comes from God. All of this comes from the designer of us all, right? First John 3, 1, I'm not done with the first verse yet, but the people who belong to this world don't recognize that they are God's children because they don't know him, right? Now, this is important because when we talk about cosmos, we talk about the world, John is really talking about the evil humanistic system that dominated society in them. That's the Roman society. That's the Greek society and philosophy that they were running under. The Ephesian cults that were evolved in the time. He's writing about those things. What's interesting is that now, 2,000 years later, we need to make sure that this dominant culture, which is the Christian culture in North America, we need to make sure that we have not become the dominant evil, humanistic, and oppressive culture. It's important that we as Christians do not take the place of the Roman society back then and become the oppressors in this world for any group of people. Are you with me on that? Right, this is important because it's easy to go, we're the believers, that's the world. He's really talking about whatever dominates and oppresses. Let's make sure that we as Christians never become the dominators and the oppressors. Okay, I think that's important. But Listen, if the world does not understand us, it's because it has not experienced the love that God wants to lavish upon them. And do you know how they experience the love that God wants to lavish upon them? Through us. So if the world hates us, maybe it's because we haven't been that lovable at times. And maybe because we haven't loved through the hate, which is what you have to do sometimes. Right? Their misunderstanding is not due to simple evil intent. 
In fact, it's often because it is uncomfortable with being loved so lavishly. I mean, have you ever had too much love? I ask this question all the time. We're actually uncomfortable with too much love because we are used to love with an expiration date or a condition. We first have to become comfortable with being loved lavishly. But it takes time and we reject it all the time. We reject it for ourselves and we certainly reject it for others. He continues, just to the second verse now. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. So what it means is that we know some of it, but we don't know all of it. So we're living in the now and the not yet. We know some, but in the not yet, we'll know everything. However, the pronoun that it uses in Greek stresses the continuity, the continuity between our present state and the future state. What it means is this. John is saying, hey, there's some things we know, not everything we know. Later on, we'll know everything. But what we know now will not change. And what we know is how much God loves us. So what this means is that when you get to heaven, you will not experience another level of God's love because you have already been loved to the highest level of God's love. Are you with me on this? So you will not be loved anymore because you can't be loved anymore because all the love that God has to expend on you, he is already expending on you. He is lavishing upon you. And while the not yet will be even greater than the and now, it's not because the love of God will change. It's because we will understand it in a much better way. We have something amazing to look forward to, but we are also made into children of God right now. And that should inform the way we live. And he begins to talk about this a little bit, finishing up 1 John 3, verse 2. But we do know that we'll be like him and we will see him as he really is. Like who? Like Christ. So that means there's a bit of Christ-likeness in this. But what is Christ-likeness? It means to be led by the heart of Jesus, filtering every situation and every event in our lives through the heart of Jesus. The purpose of life is to glorify God by becoming Christ-like. You could say that we are created to be like Christ. Now, he's about to go into an interesting conversation, and I want you to stick with me here because I think it's really the most important part of this text. He says this, listen, and all, all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. John is actually revealing his reason for writing the, about the second coming of Christ. Our final state has an ethical and moral component for the present. In other words, there's practical implications of trying to be Christ-like, Right? Being from God, his children, creates a vibrant hope for the future, and that motivates pure living in everyday life. But we don't like that, right? And we sometimes eschew and resent these implications. How do I know this? Have you ever met a pastor's kid? <laughs> right? It's not fair. Pastor's kids get implicated by DNA, right? Churches all the time are like, you're the pastor's son. Why are you doing that? You're the pastor's daughter. Why are you doing that? And our kids have a tendency to push back on that because, because we are being held to what our father or our mother is being held to. And we as human beings do the same thing. And so you know what we do? Rather than accepting that Christ-likeness and trying to be like that, what we do is we say, well, maybe God's not quite like that. Maybe God's a little bit more like me. I mean, is Jesus angry, divisive, and defensive, or are we? Let me explain. Sometimes I see God characterized as a military leader by those who like that sort of stuff. Or as a CEO by those who are business-minded. Or as a genie who's going to give you everything you want by those who really love the prosperity gospel. Or as a moralist by those who really like to be moralists. 
But is that who Jesus is? Or is that who we are? Because I think Christ-likeness is probably more about being an accurate expression of Christ in the world than anything else. Which means there's an implication to that. It means that if we're to be an accurate representation of Christ in the world, we should probably know who Christ is. Which means we better jump into studying Jesus, living Jesus, breathing Jesus, and seeking what Jesus sought more than anything. All right, all, all that, that's a lot, right? But he hasn't even gotten to the conversation about sin, which he's about to jump into. And this is where things get really sticky. He says, everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. We all know that. It's not a big deal. But the texts that are coming are texts that have a tendency to make us feel really bad about ourselves. So I want to define what we talk about when John is talking about sin. The Greek word for sin is harmatia, right? Or harmatia, which it means missing the mark, not able to find the right path. But John is using this more actively than we normally see it, right? He's saying, he's talking about those who are choosing a continual practice of sin. In other words, willful, habitual action. They are choosing the practice of sin. I want you to keep that in your head because it makes a difference and I'll explain it, right? And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins and there's no sin in him. We don't have any problem with that. This is where it gets tough as you read these texts. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Now, this is where you read it as a Christian and you go, "Uh uh-oh, because this is a pretty clear defining binary. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. So you either say, I can no longer sin at all, or you say, I have sinned, so I must not be living in him. Those are pretty much the implications for it. And we all feel really bad about ourselves because we know that we've missed the mark. Has anybody here ever taken piano lessons? Yeah, like most of us, right? If I ask the question, are there anybody here who remembers how to play piano? That's a different question completely, right? Every, all of us remember that one song we had to learn. And that's the one we sit down and play and our parents go, oh, he learned. And you're like, well, this one. That's it. I took seven years. Can't remember anything. Um, but let's think about practice. Because this is what John is talking about. There's a difference between the habitual or continual practice of righteousness and the continual or habitual practice of sin. He's not talking about sinning. He's talking about the practice of sin versus the practice of righteousness. If you practice a piece of music, do you get it right every time? No. This is why we're practicing, right? If you practice sinning, do you think you get it right every time? Maybe not, but it does seem a little bit easier than righteousness, doesn't it? I think if you practice sin, you get better at it more quickly. But this is what we're talking about. He's not saying if you made a mistake and missed the mark, you're no longer in God. He's saying if you decide to practice sin habitually, to choose that as your direction and that as your practice, you're not of God which I think we can all agree with without feeling like we're not part of it. The problem is we have a tendency to think that sin is an action. It's one behavior, and if we do that behavior, then God doesn't want anything to do with us. It is a habitual, continual practice of sin versus a habitual and continual practice of righteousness. And this is really simple. You can, it's easy to know if you are habitually practicing righteousness, but maybe not hitting the mark every single time. 
This is, this is what John is talking about versus the other. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, the habitual practice of sin, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But God came to destroy the works of the devil. It's not when you make a mistake that you're no longer of God. It's when you choose to live a life directly opposed to what God wants. We will all make mistakes. There's not one of us in here that can say that we don't sin anymore. And you know that this is a heresy that was happening at the church in the time, right? There were people who were saying, you're in Christ, you can no longer sin. It's impossible for you to sin, which means one of two things. Either they live a rigid life that is really loveless, or the second part is they live a life of complete lasciviousness or just complete reckless abandon because they don't think anything they do is sin because they're in Christ. Both of those are bad, right? Both of those are wrong. And John's like, hey, people, relax. You're getting weird about this. Don't continue in the perpetual practice of sin. Work on the perpetual practice and the habitual practice of righteousness. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning the perpetual practice of sin because they are children of God who are working towards the perpetual practice of righteousness. So now, we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love others, other believers, does not belong to God. A couple things going on here. First of all, he's explaining it again and trying to get you to understand, right? And here's the thing. People sometimes say like, hey, I don't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites in church. I'm like, nah, there's not really. Really, in church, there's not a lot of hypocrites. There's not a lot of you who are taking your time because you absolutely don't believe this and think it's good for you to be here. Like, that's just a liar and an actor, and very few people do that, quite honestly. There are some, but very few. Then they'll go, well, okay, maybe not hypocrites, but there's a bunch of sinners in the church. I'm like, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, a bunch of us, right? That's fine. But these are not people who are perpetually practicing sin. These are sinners, because we do, who are perpetually practicing righteousness and sometimes missing the mark. So yeah, it's a room full of really normal people. So you should come. Because you're just like them. And then it's like John does all this work and he's writing furiously if he's still writing this, you know, and it's not a scribe and he's writing. You can tell he gets to the end of this and in verse 11 he goes, that was a lot. I need to sum this up. What should I say? And he goes, oh, okay, this is the message you heard from the beginning. Just love one another. Just, just do that. All this theology, all this pushing back on heresy, all this, you know, is it this, is it that? Just fill your life with love. Do acts of service and grace and mercy to the people around you. Love them. Love your children. Love your spouse. Love your partner. Love the people around you like you never have. And you know what? You won't fall into the habitual habit of sin because you don't have time. Loving takes a while. Fill your life with that. It's so simple. You think at the end of his life, he got tired of writing this. Just love one another. And we, here at Crosswalk, we sum it up in the word that you know super well. 
Just love well. Fill your life with opportunities and chances to love the people around you well. Lean into that again and again. Make mistakes and apologize. Say the wrong things and backtrack. But give love, receive love, share love, and love one another. It's not rocket science, but it's the hardest thing you'll do in your life because it means you can't look towards yourself. You have to look towards others. You have to seek what God sought. You have to seek his kingdom first. And that always leads to love. You do that, you'll be just fine. Because rather than be captured to your sin, you'll be constantly looking for ways to love. And I know it's simple but not easy, but that's okay. That's why we call it the practice, so we can keep getting better at it. Let's bow our heads. Lord of grace, I just want to say thank you. And I want, to, I want to say thank you for the simplification of the message as well as the implication of the message, which is that you are with us and you love us and your presence is here to walk us through our habitual practice of righteousness. Lord, may we get better at it, but if not perfect, thank you for the space in between you and us being paper thin because you came down to us. And Lord, I want to thank you for a church that is so full of your abundance and grace and mercy that it's willing to show the world how to love well. Lord, keep us from becoming the dominant humanistic system that oppresses. Humble us so that we understand what it means to be loved. Grow us, Lord. And thank you for your incredible sustaining love that you have so overwhelmingly lavished on us. In what world are we loved this well? Pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.